All right, welcome everyone back to Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. And today we have Marcus Merchant on with us. He is the director of IT at Old Thompson, which is actually a really cool company. You guys make spices. And I, you know, we're going to continue the theme of or build upon the theme of IT as a business force multiplier because a lot of people get stuck in an environment where IT is really a cost center. That's kind of the old school mentality. And we might not even call it old school because um, a lot of people still manage IT as a cost center. It's still a line item on the P&L. But first, welcome to the show, Marcus. Why don't you just give us a little background on yourself? A, like, how did you get into IT to begin with? What, what's the history there? Maybe, you know, what was your first computer? I like asking people that because I kind of like living in the past a little bit with my 386. Let's just go from there, man. Great. Thanks for having me. Um, I've been in the IT world for for, for quite a while. Um, kind of a, a funny story how I originally got into it. Back when I was uh, 18, uh, my parents moved uh, about six hours away, and I decided to stay. And I had broken my foot. I had broken my foot playing um, roller hockey, and my friend was doing tech support for a company uh, in Southern California here where I'm at. And he actually stole a copy of the test, and I memorized the answers, and I went in, aced the test, and got the job. <laughs> and That's when, I, when I first started way back then, it was yeah. um, all management was gone at, at Comdex, right? It used to be held in November. Um, so they were, all the management was gone at Comdex. This is prior to CES. Uh-huh. And so I got my first week with no one knowing that I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Okay, so what year is this? Oh, this would be 97. So internet just kind of, I mean, where were we at with AOL there? I mean, did you have an email address yet? Uh, I did, and I was doing support on dial-up modems, 56K and 33.6 modems. Nice. I, I, I still try to explain that to my kids. You know, like the internet is like not really that you know, it, it's new. It's still new. It's really not old. Like you've never been in a world without internet. And we grew up in a world, you know, where there was a point in time where there was no internet. I just, that to me still, it's, I might sound cliche, but it still blows my mind that, you know, we, we grew up in a world where there was a, there was no internet at one point. Yeah. The kids, kids, my kids don't even know what it's like to have a phone that has a cord attached to it. <laughs> so, all right. So cool. Go, go on. This is great. Um, so after that, um, it kind of put me in the computer world, if you will. Um, did some miscellaneous jobs doing tech support. And then I was an on-site you know, technician, got into more of the engineering side and worked for an email marketing startup back in uh, 2000 uh, in LA, uh, back during the, uh, the internet boom. Um, I think the owners of that company were just a tad late looking for to jump into the boom uh, just as it was getting ready to crash. Uh-huh. Uh, and then from there, I got into a, a company uh, that also did telephone systems. Um, but so hey, real, where, rewind, uh, re, real, let's just rewind real quick because I got to hear the rest sure. of the story about um, you going to work, not knowing anything, and everyone has gone at a conference. Sure. 
So, yeah, so I started, I basically had a script to work off of, you know, because my buddy got me the job. Uh, you know, he sat next to me, a small room, bunch of cubes. Uh-huh. You may have heard of them. If, you, if you're in the modem world, it was Atlas Peripherals or, or Newcom. Uh-huh. Um, it was just funny. It's such a shady company. I look, looking back at it, they ended up getting <laughs> shut down by the SEC for a bunch of fake revenue uh, to boost stock. But, uh-huh. um, Luckily, I left like a month before that happened. Um, Telecom, yeah, internet, so, there's so, a lot of shady stories there. Oh, fact, yeah, I've, yeah. I've been thinking of doing just like just a show on on just you know exposing the corruption. <laughs> oh, that's that's yeah. You, you'll be on for a long time. You try and get all of that, but I might get killed. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so I was basically sitting there answering phones and and you know being coached by my friend and what to do and um, it. it it took a while. Uh, obviously, it took a while. He used to it. My call volume was lower than a lot of the other guys, but all of, you know, IT geeks, if you will, were pretty lazy. So I don't think anyone took that many calls as it was. So it was tech support. There's no one modem. looking over your shoulder. It was basically dial-up tech support. Dial-up tech support. We did modem, sound cards. Uh, I think were the two two big products. So support back then it was. You know, a good chunk of Windows ninety five, Windows some Windows ninety eight, and some mm-hmm. Windows three dot one. Yeah, and uh, just out of curiosity, was that at a point where you guys had network cards and you could play games in between calls and stuff like that? Just out of curiosity. We did. Yeah, we were running on the system. We used to. Yeah, we played a lot of. Uh, yeah, we played games and uh, we would use WinNuke and and blue screen people's computers for fun. Nice. We. Um, I mean, it was, it, I had a similar first job, which was uh, tech support for Quest Wireless out in Colorado. And they eventually moved me up to like the premier account, right? So the premier account was like real low call volume. You got a call like every hour. And I had come from where it was just back-to-back calls. You know, like you hang up, another call comes in. You hang up, another call comes in. And then eventually I got moved to this premier account uh, because I was good with dealing with like, you know, upset people that wanted to, you know, return their phone or, or lie about a warranty replacement. And, you know, we, we'd, you know, we'd save customers and stuff like that. So eventually they moved me to this premier account, which you get like one call every hour. And it was just seven of us sitting in these cubes and there was nothing, nothing was locked down back then. Nothing, there was no such thing as like, you know, a content filter or there was none of that. The computers are just all networked. And we had, you know, some kind of like OC3 internet connection, probably two of them coming into the building because it was a large call center. So we had crazy internet speed back then and all the computers were networked. So we would play, you know, like a whole game of civilization in one day, all networked together where we could chat with each other and and put someone on, like, hold on a second, I've got a call. I'm going to take a call. We quickly replace the phone and then get back on the game. And it was ridiculous. Uh, Then eventually they closed that account. And that was the end of one of the best jobs ever. You know, yeah. for a college kid. Yeah. Um, so okay, so so fast forward. You got your you got some experience there, and what was kind of like your first big maybe like IT job? And and I don't know what happened. Uh, from there, it was actually a, a friend that had worked. A guy had I worked with there, um, ended up becoming friends, and he went to work for that startup out in out in LA, mm-hmm. and uh, got me hired on there as their you know IT manager. Um, and it was it was jumping in. It was basically forcing me to up my game. Um, so setting up all of a sudden now I went from doing you know dial up modem tech support to 
setting up exchange servers and setting up uh, development environments for programmers with you know revision control on their coding and uh-huh. stuff like that. So it was uh, really just jump in and do it. Um, Did you have a mentor or someone that was helping show you stuff there, or was it drinking from the fire hose and figuring it out? It was fire hose. It was all fire hose. Uh, I, I think most of my learning has been been that method, self taught or or uh-huh. yeah, or fixing something that doesn't work. Yeah, there's something about experience versus schooling that makes a big difference. So yeah, yeah, and back then it was huge. You know, the whole you know get your MCSE. You know, and I I took some of those classes. I'm like, this is this is this is garbage. This is you know maybe great knowledge, (laughs) no, but it tells you it tells it's straight book work. It's like no, this doesn't happen in the real world. Uh huh. Uh huh. So nice. So last time I asked you you know, for like a piece of advice or kind of, kind of like a theme or a one liner. And you said, do not implement version 1.0 of, ev- of anything. Do never, never implement version 1.0. And, you know, there's some people, there's, you know, if you look at kind of like the bell curve of, of product lifespan, right? There's, there's always a group of people that immediately that are like buyers, number one, like the iPhone comes out, like they buy it right away. Like new version of windows, the first people to download it. Right. And then there's the, the larger majority of people in the middle that like, well, let's wait for some patches and let's wait for this to get, you know, get better. And then they, you got your large number of people that implement in the middle. And then you've got some real late comers to the game and those people still have windows XP. Um, but What's the story around why not implement version 1.0 of anything? What's the deal with that? Well, if you have a lab environment and you're not using it for any kind of production type of stuff, I'd say go for it. It's a good learning experience. Uh, but when I was in the telephone world, time. I was doing a... If you have time, yeah. If you have time, if you're really bored, yeah. And <laughs> it doesn't keep you up at night when stuff doesn't work. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, uh, after that, I moved into the Avaya world. And at the time, Avaya didn't have anything in the small to medium sized uh, business world with uh, voice over IP, um, you know, PBXs. So they bought a company. Was there IP office? IP what, this did, was IP office, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Prior to, or I mean, how, how big was the typical customer back then, just out of curiosity, on non business, non small business? Um, for, our for niche market, Avaya, I, at that time, well, they had they had two products. They had a, a mid-market product, but it was all digital, no VoIP, mm-hmm. you know, that's, which was good for the, the 20 to 100, you know. Like PRI stuff. Yeah. Yeah, PRI or a couple PRIs or, uh-huh. you know, even doing point-to-points and, yep. you know, call routing over point-to-points, multiple buildings. Then they had the big the, uh, the big system that back then was called the Definity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those were, I think it was probably a good 80% of Fortune 500 companies in the U.S. were using the Definity system back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had nothing in the VoIP world. And, and obviously Cisco had come on, you know, starting to get into the game. Mm-hmm. And 3Com had their MBX out back then. Mm-hmm. And um, Avaya, rather than developing their own product in the space, they bought a company out of England called IP Alchemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they rebranded it in the U.S. and called it, you know, the Avaya IP office. And just for anyone out there um, that gets real nerdy about this stuff, if you actually Google, you know, alchemy, like Avaya alchemy stuff, you're going to see all kinds of threads that come up of like other IT guys like, hey, how do you do this? And how do you change this? Because it was actually kind of funny because I looked it up and all kinds of threads came up with people trying to program it and and various different issues. But I'll I'll let you expand upon that on what happened. So they brought their product to market here in the U.S., uh, you know, version 1.0. And uh, at the time, we had 
I had put one or two of them in, I think one of them was at some really rich house out in Brantwood. Um, Residential. And then I went to class uh-huh. and we went, I went to class and the instructor had never seen the product before. Uh, first time he'd ever opened it, taught the class, anything. So, you know, really it was, uh, well, here's some units on your desk, you know, have fun. Good luck. Let's figure it out. And, you know, yeah, let's figure it out. We'll go through the instruction, the worksheets together. <laughs> um, so, which, I mean, which is a great way to learn uh, if, you know, if you're, if you're that type of learner. And that's what I, you know, that's, that's how I am. Get, get my hands on it. Give, give me the keys and I'll, I'll figure out how to drive it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just how I've always been. And, it's just you don't um, want to implement it in your own company that way if you're learning it that way. Because what it means is um, get ready for numerous issues. Get ready for t- trouble ticket train coming through of uh, end users being upset with all their little ticks and everything. Um, and really kind of like learning by trial by fire, which I don't think is the best way to implement something if you are in charge of the IT department for your entire company. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it becomes a high stressful situation. And you know, and when, when your users are not happy, it, 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 it's tough. It's tough to deal with. Right. Um, and then, and then they, they, they decided to throw their own IP phones on the system while the Definity guys didn't talk to the IP office guys and tell them that that firmware did not work on those phones. Hmm. Um, so I spent countless hours troubleshooting and on conference calls with guys from England who were part of the original, you know, IP mm-hmm. alchemy piece. And mm-hmm. it was just a, it was just a, it was really a nightmare. It was, I mean, good looking back, good learning experience. And but it's also classic. You know, it telecom. I'm glad it wasn't on my dime back then. You know, a lot of people don't understand this. That's classic telecom, which is, you know, don't worry about it. Go sell the deal, go sell a bunch of deals and we'll figure it out. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the sales rep, you know, like goes and does his job, you know, this, you know, trying to sell one product, you know, square peg into a round hole type of thing. And then this is just classic telecom. Someone sells something, disappears, and then you are left with this, you know, this implementation insanity. Um, and no one would really know that that's going to happen unless you had inside information and inside knowledge. Um, so it's kind of, again, don't implement version 1.0 of anything. Another way of saying that would be, hey, don't worry, um, we've got teams on the roadmap and it's going to be out in August, so let's sign this now. And don't worry, you'll have it by the time you know it comes to installation. Um, that's another kind of a warning sign, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Are you following me? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. I, I definitely agree with that. Having, having a good roadmap is, is definitely something. And, and knowing on that roadmap where you want to be with that product uh, makes a big difference. And, and these days I'm in the, the ERP world and it's huge having that roadmap knowing, okay, okay. I know that, you know, in our, in our case, for example, like IOT, right. We know IOT is coming for on the you know manufacturing floor. All right. We see that it's coming out July of this year. Okay, great. That's when, that's going to be my time for example. After that point, um, you know, in a sandbox, make sure it works before I roll it out to the production floor. Uh, and knowing down the where that's coming down the road and, and how that can fit into your own schedule and, and your own plans. So just to take a step back and summarize for everyone listening, because we've been kind of all over the place, and that could be because I've drank a lot of coffee this morning and I just got back from jujitsu and I'm fried. Uh, so because it, it is just we're recording this at, at nine o'clock in the morning, and I've been up early and again drank a lot of coffee. So to summarize, um, you you're you're 
back back in the day in your career, but primarily been IT support for companies supporting customers. And we've got Avaya, a massive company, um, you know, buys Alchemy. It's a small business product, throws it at you, and now you're supporting um, all of the issues that come with that. So you've kind of learned along the way all the things not to do if you were running your own company or you were the IT director for your own company. Does that make sense? Is that my, am I yeah. summarizing that correctly? Okay. Now we're talking IoT, which we're going to get to this big story in a moment. And we're going to actually get to the point of how IT is a business force multiplier. And basically what you just said was, don't just go out and implement anything. Have a good proof of concept um, process and a process where you can test something, have it in a sandbox environment, ensure that it works, and know that when you go to roll it out, it's going to work correctly. And I find that a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people, they, they buy into the aspect of, no, you know, the sales rep told me you can just demo a product and, you know, we demo it and it's going to work and that's great. And give me like a trial period. And then they go right into implementation. And quite frankly, the trial period is painful. And every company knows that if you sign up and you go into the trial period piece, going backwards is harder than it is just to go through the pain of getting through the trial period and dealing with all the issues, which isn't cool. A proof of concept is better because you've tried it, tested it ahead of time, and you've got a, a roadmap, a process. You already know how it's going to work once you implement it into your environment. So uh, with that being said, let's talk about the you know, this, this problem that you've had in your environment, kind of this, this IOT thing and how you've, let, let's give it an example of that, I guess. Let's give an example of a good POC process where you tested something in a sandbox and what the results were. Well, the nice thing, nice thing is having one, one is having a sandbox, right? So you've got to create that environment uh, if you don't have it currently. Um, yeah. And trying to make it as real world as possible. I mean, Obviously, when you're doing proof of concept, some of the things, some of it's going to be theoretical. You're, there's there's really no way around that. Um, but as much as you can make it so you're not dealing in theory and you're dealing more in real world um, in real scenarios, I think makes a big difference. Once you have that environment set up, going through a, a, a testing process and being able to document, right? So you need to really, and that's that's one thing that at least me and I found that a lot of IT people I deal with were pretty poor about documenting. Um, things. And it's so important. It, it's it's really important to document it. So if something happens, you've got a reference point, you have a rollback, um, you know, scenario if you need to roll back or a, a troubleshoot, you know, how to troubleshoot it or how you fixed it last time when it happened. Mm. Um, and myself included, I, you know, I have a, a I, I hate having to do the documentation, but it's such an a important piece of, of, you know, having a, um, something to refer back to and having a standard operating procedure when you're doing something. It's historical um, data. It helps other people. Um, not only is it evidence to things if you need to, you know, point a finger for whatever reason in the future, right? And that goes just in general, I think, because you've got a lot of people that just pull IT aside, don't enter tickets, there's no process, and Joe Blow gets more attention than someone else just because... You know, he's pulling people aside. Things aren't getting documented, et cetera. And back, and back to that P, uh, proof of concept piece as well. I'm assuming there's, you want to get a good sampling of your end users in various different departments as well. Yeah, yeah. It's all going to depend on what you're, you know, what you're, 
trialing, if you will, but but you definitely want to, the, the bigger the sample size, the more the more accurate your your outcome's going to be and how more predictable your outcome's going to be when you go live with it. Um, you know, if you forget a department or forget of a, a piece of the software and like, oh, I'm not going to worry about that. It's not going to be, that's the one that's going to come bite you when you go, when you go live with it, if you haven't tested it, if you haven't even thought about it. So we've been going um, just all the kind of like the nerdy tech stuff so far. Um, let's let's bring in the business aspect of this. So we um, let, let's just go back to that kind of real real um, world example here. And I think we're, we're to talk specifically the red zone reporting piece and that forty percent uptick in production. Let's just kind of give an overview of the whole story from you know, uh, POC sandbox type of thing to final results and how that improved the business um, and how IT, how IT in general can drive the business forward. Sure. So fast forward um, at, at a, where, I, where I'm at now at Old Thompson, uh, manufacturing, uh, it was kind of a new world to me. I didn't really know ERP. I didn't under, I didn't, I worked in manufacturing plants as far as, you know, putting in a phone system, working on computers, but never, never from inside the business. Um, so it was a new world for me. Uh, we decided to implement a product called Red Zone. And in the manufacturing world, um, they deal in OEE, which stands for Overall Equipment Effectiveness. And what it does, it measures how well you're performing on the plant floor. Um, you want to be able to know, okay, if, you know, if I'm supposed to be able to make you know, X number of parts in an hour, am I getting close to that? Are my machines down? Is it because this, you know, arm that's supposed to pick this up and move it over here is broken, whatever it might be. Uh, and also quality. So, you know, 100 pieces come in, you know, do 100 pieces go out. So it kind of takes all those factors and has a formula and it gives you this, this overall percentage of, of how well you're, you're running. Um, and we had some ideas in our head here on, you know, okay, well, we think we're running at about, you know, 60% uh, based on, you know, what we think we can do. And why, so what were some of those man? things? What were some of those hints? Like, what were some of the things that, like, made you think that? Well, you didn't have really the data was... yet. You didn't have the hard data or you didn't have all the reporting in. So what were some of the things that, you know, gave you a clue? Some of it was just really just throwing darts. Um, you know, I, I think some of it was just really throwing darts and not understanding our our downtime. We knew how fast we could run and how fast we were getting them out, but all the other factors. When you say them, as, you know, when you say them specifically, we're talking like bottles of spice filled up, put in a package, and sent out. Correct. Yeah. So, okay. so where an empty bottle comes in and a full bottle in a box comes out the other side. Cool. Um, and we someone and there's human there's human part portions to this too. Like there's a person like grabbing something, I'm assuming, and physically grabbing a bottle and putting it onto a machine of some sort, correct? Yeah, we've got we've got quite a few people on our on our floor. Um it's become a little more automated now. Um, but we still have a lot of people down there. Uh so there's a lot of pieces that they do, you know, they They've got to get the spices into the big hoppers that can fill. You know, someone's got to um, unbox the labels and put them on a roll and unpack the boxes and get them on the thing, on the conveyor belt, that kind of thing. So uh, a lot of manpower. And um, so, yeah, so we, we had an idea that how fast we could fill, but all the other pieces, all the other factors that went into that formula 
we're not accounted for, you know, downtime, you know, okay, well, it's taking us, you know, two hours to do a, a change from, you know, from spice to spice. And in the food world, when you do that, you've got to do a full cleaning in between, right? So that's what takes a good majority of the time. Well, if you're running, you know, if you're doing these small orders because you're behind or because you're not planning well, all of a sudden, you know, I ran for a half hour just to go and clean for two hours because I had to make this one little customer's order for them. Uh. Um, so it was kind of us to take a step back, looking at the red zone, take a step back. Okay. Let's, let's look at our manufacturing process as a whole. Let's, where do we need to improve the entire process? Not just purely how fast these machines can run, because there's a lot of other factors that go into how effective you are. Um, so we implemented that and, and, you know, with their product, they're very good at coming in and really pushing the coaching side of it. Um, not just, you know, let's just put up numbers. No, let's, let's improve the processes. If we don't improve the processes, we're never going to get those numbers or we're never going to be able to improve those numbers. So when we implemented it, we saw that we were closer to 35% OEE, right? So we had this idea that, oh yeah, we're running about 60, which, you know, it's not great, but it's not horrible. Well, no, we're running 35, which is pretty, pretty poor, pretty piss poor. Well, there's a big opportunity. Yeah. Huge opportunity. Okay. So we implemented the red zone and we started going through that and we started looking at our processes and where we can improve and where we can schedule better. Um, it allowed us to track our downtime on the machines, um, which was huge. Okay. And it, you know, gave us the ability to say, you know, we really need more maintenance staff. So we bring in more maintenance staff to help keep those machines up. We can see a part now and say, okay, this part's costing us, you know, three hours of downtime in a given day because it breaks or it jams or whatever it might be. And now, now all of a sudden we can attach a dollar amount to it. Well, three hours of downtime running at however many units an hour, it's going to cost us, you know, $50,000 in a month of downtime. Well, the and labor, it is people standing yeah. around, all kinds people of people standing around, yeah, product, product not being made, you know, it, units not being shipped. I mean, it, it can factor a lot real the quick. ROI is crazy. And it just is. to just to pause for a second, what was your role kind of going through this whole process? Like what are you doing during this process? I just want to kind of get an idea of like because I think a lot of people in IT think, look, my job is to like keep the network up and running and to make sure that the desktops operate. I want to know your role in this situation. Like what were you what doing? Was my role supposed to be, or what was my no? I don't care role? about supposed to be. I want to know <laughs> what you were doing because it doesn't matter what it was supposed to be. I want to know like what you were actually doing because that's where the difference really happens. Sure. So for for me, you know, all of a sudden we have this big investment in this software. Like, did you um, lead it? Did you take over? Like, I mean, you know, like what was going on there? Originally, I ended up taking over. Um, originally, I was obviously there's support and help and, and get the, you know, get the hardware out there that we need and get the software up and running that we needed. And it was really fascinating with the, the process of improvement, the operational side of it. I really, I really enjoyed that and ended up taking it over. And cause we make this investment. Well, I want to make sure that investment, you know, works for our, that we see value in that investment and we're just not spending money for the sake of spending money. Right. Um, you know, so I really took it over and, and, made it successful. Um, 
and enjoyed it the whole time. I, I really love the idea of the process improvement and allowed and it kind of opened the door for other things. You know, there's, there's plenty of processes in, in the IT, you know, under, in my realm that need to be improved as well. And it gave me the opportunity to, to see how to do that and some of the, the best practices in, in making that happen. And, um, and the you reason know, and why where technology up, can help. Yeah. And the reason why I bring this up is because you were really acting as a CTO there. You weren't acting as IT director. And I think that that's key because that's the bridge. And I think a lot of people, a lot of IT directors, you know, I, I talk with guys, ask me advice all the time, Phil, I want to get into this, you know, this IT role. And I, you know, and unfortunately I have to kind of look at their, you know, whatever their profile resume. I see lack of experience there. And I try to tell people like, you're not going to just jump into that role. What you want to do is you want to take any role that you can get. I don't care if it's system admin, whatever it is, and then act outside of your role and make a difference in the business. Exactly. You got to, you have to provide value. If you want to keep excelling, not only in, in, in IT or in the job you're at, but in, in life in general, you've got to add value um, to where, to where you're at. And you hear the saying, you know, you want to dress, dress for the part that you want, not for the part that you have, or dress for the role that you want, not the role that you have. And it's the same thing. Take actions that would yeah, act the as role that you want to be. It's very yeah, cliche. Act as if you are that person. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Awesome. So, so, so move on. So, um, so you took over this project, um, implementing this, this red zone software and just out of curiosity, was there any other options on the table or was, was red zone the only option? Like how did you guys end up choosing that? And were you involved in that? There was, we, we looked at a couple different options. Um, uh, our ERP system has some native stuff in it as well. It would have required some third-party um, third-party applications or third-party uh, vendors as well. Yeah, software and devs. Really, exactly, yeah. And really what we decided, that the in the ERP world, OEE, the majority of what you're going to see, at least especially for the cloud-based one that we use, uh, is mostly automotive, right? So the huge in Detroit, uh, Air Michigan area, a lot of automotive. So... It didn't quite fit exactly what we were looking for. And Red Zone is specific to the food and beverage industry. Um, and their cost their cost model was good. Their pricing structure was good. And their turnaround time. They have a pretty quick turnaround time, which I think made a, a, a big part of that decision. Um, so they're not even fully integrated with our ERP system at all. It kind of runs on its own island. Uh, but it does, it does what we need. Okay. Gotcha. Um, cool. So, all right. So let's go back through the implementation process and back to like, what were some of the like roadblocks or I don't know if it's a roadblock or something that you noticed and, and, or reporting or data that was given to you guys and the changes that you personally suggested. Most of the, we had several, several hurdles to have to overcome. One of them was definitely our data, uh, you know, information around data. It, it gave us an opportunity to review what we thought we could, you know, run at speed wise, uh, look at our number of SKUs that we have, make sense of, you know, order of, order of operation, you know, what order should we run these in if we're going to, you know, what are the spices that we don't have to clean between for whatever reason? And if we don't, well, let's schedule the runs accordingly. Let's do product A and product B because we don't have to 
clean between going from A to B, but we would if we did it from B to A, for example. Um, so taking a look at our, our master data, if you will, getting that cleaned up, I think the other biggest hurdle to overcome was was the culture shock, right? We went from fighting fires every day and, you know, everyone kind of doing whatever they thought was best for the business or best for what they were trying to accomplish out there in a given day to, you know, processes. Okay, this is this is our process to get this done. When, you know, X happens, your your role in doing that is to do steps one, two, and three. And the other person is to do four, five, and six, whatever that is. So defining, so human those, roles, defining those processes. Literally human deployment maps and stuff like that. Like don't just do whatever. Like you literally walk from here to here and you do this next. You do not do whatever you think should be done. Exactly. That's huge yeah, in the restaurant world. Part of it. I worked for a Starbucks for years and I had a saying that was, it was just, where's the broom? And it was whenever someone would just come to me and just ask a random question, like, where's the chocolate chips or where's this? You know, I'd be like, where's the broom? Because every time, you know, you, you have a new manager that comes in, they might have a lot of ideas that aren't backed by anything. They're just ideas. Like, I want to change this. I want to change where the broom is kept. I was like, okay, I hope you're ready for that. Because if you change where the broom is kept, you're going to have 20 people asking you, where's the broom? Yeah. You know what I mean? And every time someone interrupts you, like the, you know, I think it's an automatic, like every question or every interruption costs like a manager seven minutes of their time or something. And that's just like a very small example. So how do you deal with the pushback or the staff pushback or making the changes? Because that can be sometimes a big hurdle. It, it was, it started to be a big hurdle, but I think the biggest thing for us that we did was we, we brought that staff in when we were looking at a process let's say like a cleaning or you know sanitizing the line for example uh-huh. uh, we would bring them in and ask their opinion and say okay what are you what are you struggling with out there where can I help you uh-huh. and that's really big I think from the management standpoint is, is knowing that our job isn't to tell them what to do uh-huh. our job is to help them do their job better more efficiently make them happier as management, we've really got to, you know, look at the, in red zone, they call it the upside down pyramid, right? Mm. That my job, and it's, and it's the same thing I, as far as like IT in general, right? My, my job is to serve my company. Yeah. My job is to make everyone's job easier, make them serve more efficient, leadership. give them the tools they need. You've got it. You've got it. And that's where providing value is. Yeah. My, my value isn't telling them to reboot their computer. Right, anyone could do that. My value is helping them be efficient at their job and making sure that that what they're using on a daily basis works for them. Um, so, in the manufacturing on the plant floor, it's the same thing. Brought them in. Okay, what do you guys need help with? Where can we help you? Where do you see improvement? And then taking a chunk of those ideas, you know, maybe not all of them, but taking a, you know parts of those ideas or things we didn't even think about that they're dealing with it on a daily basis. They know better than we do, uh-huh. and then implementing it. It gives them a voice. And then rerunning the data. Say, I am a piece of this, you know, new process. Awesome. And then rerunning the data and seeing how yeah, to and looking at it again. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we had cameras out there and we would, you know, time them on a changer. We went from an hour on a changeover down to 20 minutes. Wow. And some of that was, a chunk of it was feedback from them saying, you know, we didn't have a place to plug in the, uh, the vacuum cleaner. Wow. We didn't even notice that. We didn't think, great, let's get you some power right there. And, you know, made their life easier, gave them input, gave them feedback, let them know that we're listening to what they, what they need. And that, what's that another one? Give me another example. Let's, let's, what's another one? 
Another one was like them having to walk across the room to get some of the cleaning supplies. So what did we do? We got the cleaning supplies. We put it on a wheeled cart. And mm-hmm. 15 minutes prior to change over, that cart gets wheeled over to right to where they need it. How about orders and process with the small order? You know, and like, you know, how did you start, you know, money on the shelf and stuff like that? How did you redo the process of orders and making sure that we make the right amount of spice and the right amount of time and all that? Well, it came down to better planning um, from a from management standpoint, understanding our, our good, true forecasting, uh-huh. um, and then how to how to package various components together, and being able to look at we might look at one of our lines and say, okay, that line it's easier and it's quicker for us to change the bottle than it is for us to change the size. Okay, great. So we're going to keep the same, or not the size. I'm sorry, the spice. Uh-huh. So in that case, we're going to keep the same spice and we're going to change the bottle because it makes more sense on that line. Uh-huh. On our other line, it's much faster to change the spice than it is to change the bottle size. Okay, well, let's keep the same bottle and package size and let's change the spice. We need to change the spice. So Amazing. really taking a look at that from a, a overall standpoint and then also cleaning up you know, what we're selling. You know, Do we really want to sell this this product that's selling all of 50 units at a dollar a unit, you know, you're, no, we don't want to make it anymore. Let's get rid of it. Let's get them into something else or, you know, or, or we got to price it to where it makes sense. So in the end, what's the, where do you guys stand today? Stan, we're sitting, we've had for the last six weeks, we're sitting at 70, 78% OEE. And do you know what that translates into revenue for the company? It's a it's a huge number. More than revenue wise, I think percentage wise, it's given us it's given us eighty five percent, basically eighty five percent more revenue. If you look at the OE points with the other things added into it, it's given how much, us triple wait, the capacity. How much more revenue? Or uh, how much more is it, yeah, like what was it's there? It's given a, us double. Okay, okay. So in other words, flow through profit. If we're talking, if we're looking at a PL and we're looking at line items and stuff like that, you affected, I'm assuming labor was one that was affected. Um, you know, obviously production went up. So automatically there's, I mean, it's, I guess it's major savings and then producing stuff. And well, if you went from 30% to 70%, it's literally almost double time. Yeah. And it's really, it allows us to triple our capacity with about 60% of the the headcount in there. Uh, at the time, we had a lot of temporary staff when we uh-huh. were busy and not running efficiently. We were able to, to cut the temporary staff down to virtually none. Um, and we're running with, yeah, triple, triple the capacity because it allowed us to, we have nine work centers, nine lines, um, uh-huh. and we'll run, we only have to run seven of them during the first shift of the day and one, maybe two of them second shift of the day during the day. And prior to that, we were running all of them all the time. So three X at 60% capacity. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's with, yeah, the 60% of the human capital, which is, it's been amazing. So more, more so than generating revenue, it's brought our, our margins way up on, on our current sales. So, there's there's one theme I've been taking notes this whole time, and the one theme that I have that keeps coming up and up again with you is, and I want to ask the question why why were you successful when you had no experience, and maybe that's the reason why. 
Because the thing, because what's interesting is every role that you kind of jumped into, it was drinking from the fire hose. I don't have the experience for it. And do you think that that was one of them? Do you think it's a creative mind and your ability to think outside of the box that it is? Um, combined with the fact that you were thrown into a situation where you had to figure it out that was helpful, that might have made you more successful, or what? What's made you so successful? I don't like to lose. Because <laughs> 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 I don't like to lose. No, it's. it's I like I love, that. I, I mean, love. That could be it. Some people are just, yeah, yeah. Some people are just you know relentless. Like no way, just relentless. There's no such thing as as going backwards ever. So yeah, yeah, it, it, and I don't like. I don't like giving up on something without putting in the honesty. I don't want to give up on something or back off of something. If I haven't, if I can't say I didn't give it my all. Right. So, and for me, it's, it's, I love learning new things. I love technology. I don't like to be bored. Um, I'm not the type who's going to sit there and be happy with doing the same thing day in and day out. That's not, that's just not Marcus. Um, so it gave me the, you know, these opportunities, come up to jump in and take the ownership of it and you know i don't have anyone fighting me on it and uh, okay well yeah go ahead go for it great i'm gonna jump in and take it and see where we can take it uh that's a good point because a lot of people do just want to go to work and a lot of people do just want to show up i mean that's the first the first rule of any job is you got to show up on time but i mean a lot of people do just want to show up um yeah and they just want to mail it in well i i I don't i want to make a difference i want to make an impact i want to make a difference yeah, taking ownership in the company is 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 big. Not only that, it's it's, it's very rewarding, and um, not only are you adding value, but it brings immense value to yourself. Um, a lot of people say add value. I think that's it's too. You understand what it means because you understand because you've done it. But I think we need need a better definition for that. I think we need a, a more detailed. You know, when we say add value, what does that mean? Does it mean, you know, take ownership in the company, understand what the vision is of the company, how does the company make money, and how can you affect the, how can you affect that bottom line? And, and I guess either either save the company money, make more money, improve efficiencies and processes. Um, that's where we're really talking about how we add value. I, I think it's ownership, take ownership in the company and understand how the company makes money. Yeah, understand how they make money, understand how we can, you know, save save them money or improve something to where they're making, it becomes more uh, more profit in a certain process or whatever that you're doing. Um, you know, if, you're, if you look at, you know, in our, our case, like the, the plant floor, for example, you know, we're spending a lot of money on automation, right? Well, what's the, what's, why do we want to do that? It, it's a big capital investment. Well, you, you look at it, and it adds value because over the, you know, 18 months, all of a sudden that piece of equipment put in costs a lot less than, you know, wear and tear on someone's body on, on, you know, repetitive motion that we might have to deal with or lifting heavy, you know, boxes or, or whatever, whatever it might be. Well, that's a good um, point. How much did this whole thing cost? And I'm not, if you can't reveal it, that's fine. But I mean, what, I mean, what are we talking about as far as, you know, it, because a lot of times something that seems like a big number is not a big number. If you're cutting, if you're cutting all of your temp staff and you're, you know, three Xing your production at 60%, then all of a sudden that uh, investment is really probably one of the best investments you ever made. But a lot of times people look at just the numbers and, and, you know, that's it. That's the end of the discussion. 
Yeah, and there's a big so there's I'm glad to talk about it. There's there's a lot that goes into this investment. Um it's the whole plant form production in general. Um not just the red zone piece, not just, you know, the human capital piece or the, the process improvement piece, but overall we're looking at about a seven million dollar investment. Um, that we expect to have an ROI within 12 to 18 months. Well, a 12 month ROI is uh, a 12 month payback is great. So. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and we have, you know, we've got some, some private equity investors in it. That's, you know, any investor, if they can get their return investment in, you know, under three years, they're thrilled. Uh, yeah. 12 months, 18 months. And then, I mean, that's, that's 7 million. It's a, it's yeah. a pretty good, it's a pretty big number. Uh, man, it's been, it's been a great conversation uh, for anyone out there. Um, you know, anyone out there listening, did you have anyone, any one piece of advice or anything that sticks in your head that, you know, is kind of like any piece of advice for anyone? Well, you know, you know, a couple of things. One, if you want to go get it, right. You've got to want to go get it. Um, and you know, don't, don't take no for an answer. If you, if you believe in something and making it happen, you know, it or, you know, process operation, whatever it is, you've got to give it that honest shot. You know, don't, don't give up on something. If you can't say that you honestly gave it your, gave it your all. If it's something you believe in, it can make it happen. Uh, and, and for me, it's, you know, we're food and beverage manufacturing. You look at the industry, it's very, in the manufacturing world, it's very low tech when it comes to the, you know, if you compare us to like the medical equipment world or manufacturing or, you know, automotive manufacturing and, and, and soon, soon we'll see a lot of, you know, bio, uh, bioengineering manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's right around the corner. So I don't believe there's any reason why a food company in, in California can't be just as high tech as some of those other ones and use those, that technology for our advantage. So that's, that's my goal is bringing us into the, you know, well, hey, man, there's no bigger the model age of manufacturing. There's no bigger model uh, than McDonald's. Okay. And that's food. Okay. And they're probably like the most automated. I mean, if you look at just the whole McDonald's story in general, which is pretty mind blowing how fast a hamburger joint grew to the size that it, that it did, you know, um, and that's all about process. And uh, you know, maybe not so much IT, but definitely process. Um, so, man, it's been uh, it's been great talking with you. It's been a great show, um, and I look forward to having you on the show again in the future, man. Yeah, definitely great. Thanks for having me. And uh, just to answer your very first question, my first computer was a leading edge. It was back in the Tandy days. Nice, nice. <laughs> was that like a cartridge? What was? That? I don't remember that. Was a cartridge computer, floppy drive? What did we have on that? Uh, it had the five and a quarters. Yeah. Floppy. Beautiful. Five and a quarters. People don't even understand. It was like, you need a yep. disc to boot. You need a boot disc. Then you need, it was, you know, it was like a boot disc and then it was a disc to run the program. Then it was like a disc to save your one page paper. Uh, and then, you know, flipping back and forth between discs to like even print something sometimes. Craziness. Yep, and using using scotch tape to make it read right or not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Remember, it was like you would have like a whole stack of like discs for your like papers for your paper. It's great, man. All right, thank you so much.